Father in heaven, we do need you. Um, our hearts are prone to wander. And Lord, we are calling on you to fulfill your rich promises uh, in, to us right now. One of those being that your sheep hear your voice and they, they turn, they follow you. And so Lord, I pray that as we read from your word and as your word, um, particularly your son is proclaimed from your word, Lord, I pray that we would be like sheep who hear the voice of our good shepherd and we turn and follow. And I pray that you would incline our hearts to hear you and follow you as our shepherd. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you be seated? If I told you that we have a high priest... And his name is Caleb Simons. I didn't warn him I was going to use this. Uh, the elder who uh, read scripture for us and, and prayed. If I told you that Caleb Simons was our high priest, some of you would tackle me and throw me out and lock the door. Caleb would probably be the first one who would do that. Now, and the reason why you would do that, you'd, say, you'd rightly say, no, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the great high priest. He is our high priest. Anyone else is an imposter. Except if I were to tell you, or if somebody were to tell you, you go back in time, long before Jesus Christ came, took on flesh and lived as a human, if somebody were to tell you and point to a man named Aaron and say, this is our high priest, it in fact would not have been blasphemous because that man was the high priest of God's people. And we know the difference between Aaron, and we know the difference between Aaron and, and Jesus, and that Aaron was a high priest that God gave to his people to establish this role in this office of the high priest so his people would know that they do need for their sins to be paid for, that blood is the payment, that death is the cost for sin, and that God would provide them a man to offer that for them. And God, through Aaron and that office of high priest, would teach them about the great high priest who would one day come and instead of offering the body of an animal, he would offer his own body as a sacrifice for our sin. And so we learn much about our need for Christ through the office of Aaron, the role of the high priest. And, as we, and I say this because as we've been going through the book of 1 Samuel, we've been calling Jesus, or we've been calling David, Messiah, and rightly, I notice some of your faces are not enjoying that very much, and that's good. But we learn that Jesus is the Messiah. David was a Messiah. And through the role that God gives to David, we learn so much about the role that God would fulfill in his son, Jesus Christ. And so we can go all the way back to the book of Ruth. And we learned in, in the book of Ruth, we saw as God redeems a family, one family, the family of Elimelech, he redeems them by providing them with a kinsman redeemer, a man, a relative, who was able to do the things that they needed to do on their behalf instead of them, and it counted for them to redeem what was lost. And then by the end of the book of Ruth, we're, in, we're instructed to long for, Israel's instructed to long for a kinsman redeemer, not just for one family, but for all of Israel. And we're 
instructed to long for and need a kinsman redeemer who would also be a king, a royal kinsman redeemer. That's just pushing us into that, and then we get the book of 1 Samuel. And so last week, we saw David getting anointed over the people of God. God sends a prophet to anoint David, literally to make him the anointed one, or the Messiah, or the Christ. Those are just the same word in different translations, Greek and Hebrew and English. And so God has provided and he has anointed David as this little m, Messiah. And so we're going to learn so much, particularly about, through this passage, about what does it mean for him to be the anointed one of his people, but also what does it mean, what is our response, or what is the people's response to this gift from God going to be? And so now that David has been placed in front of his people, has won a victory for them over Goliath and the Philistines, what is now going to happen to this David and to his people once he's already been presented by the Lord as God's chosen one? And the first thing I want us to see, and if you have your Bibles, turn to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18. The first thing I want us to see here is our first point, which is the Lord's hand is on his Messiah, which causes both great affection and great jealousy. The Lord's hand is on his Messiah, which causes both great affection and great jealousy. And so look for how the Lord and the Lord's people, look how they respond to the anointed Redeemer whom God gives to his people to redeem them. We're going to be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 18. Read the whole chapter. 1 Samuel 18. David has just killed Goliath and has talked to King Saul about this. And uh, King Saul is thinking, who are you? That's, that's basically his response. Who are you? As soon as he has finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan, that's David's son, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the men, set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this say saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David 10,000, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. 
The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be the son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Mehalathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, Let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged on the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servant told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. So we're going to end there for, for now. So the first question we were asking is, how would the Lord and the Lord's people respond to David? First and most importantly, we ought to notice how the Lord responds to the one whom he has given to his people. The one whom he he has given his people to. Would the Lord bless this man's work to redeem the people? Yes, praise God, he did. 
The Lord's hand was upon David, blessing his redeeming work in Israel. David is not redeeming them from their sin. That, remember, is Jesus' job, but he is working a great redemption for them. He's fulfilling promises that God made. He's claiming land promised by God. He's destroying enemies who are harassing and killing God's people. Now, the question is, would God leave this to chance? Would he leave this to human skill? Or would the Lord's hand be upon the Messiah to ensure the Messiah's work would be successful? The Lord's hand was definitely upon David to bless his redeeming work of Israel. He was successful in all that he did. Whatever redeeming work that God gave for him to do, it certainly happened. The Lord blessed it. Now, brothers and sisters, you are not David. You are not David. You are not the Lord's anointed. You are not the Messiah. You are not a Christ, let alone the Christ. This is no, in, no indication that the Lord will give you success in everything you do. You have no such promise. That is blasphemy, and it's the blasphemy of the prosperity gospel. It's wicked. Not only is it wrong, but it's actually so discouraging to brothers and sisters who labor away at their jobs or even in their families and do not see success in these areas. And then after hearing this false gospel... They think, the Lord must not love me and must not belong to him. But I want to say that even if that promise of success were true, and it is not, we should not be sad that God doesn't give us that promise because he gives us a better promise. And here's this promise. The Lord, the, the work which the Lord gives to his Messiah to do for his people will certainly be successful. Everything that the Lord has given the Lord Jesus Christ to do to redeem you will certainly be done. His hand is on his anointed to accomplish that redemption. Now, thinking of little M Messiahs, this was very good news for Israel standing in front of Goliath. Remember, they had the Lord's anointed man with them. That's good news for them because God had promised he would make the work of the Messiah successful. It's even better news when Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of God, he stands in front of his people, in the place of his people to redeem them from all their enemies, including and most importantly, sin and guilt. So brothers and sisters, Jesus is the Messiah and he's also God. And the Lord God will make sure that Jesus' redeeming work will be successful. None whom Jesus is the Messiah for will be partially saved, let alone unsaved. He redeems. He doesn't try to redeem. He redeems. He didn't just try to pay for your sin. He did. He didn't just try to purchase holiness and freedom from sin. He did. He will not merely try to bring you to glory. He will. He will not just try. 
And, and when he returns to rid the world of all his enemies, remember, we've seen that that is part of the job of the Messiah, to rid the world of all of God's enemies and all of the enemies of his people. He, and to crush all of his enemies, when he does return to do that, he will not just try to do that, he will certainly do that. Because the hand of the Lord is upon the Messiah's redeeming work, and he will make it perfectly successful. And that is wonderful, wonderful, wonderful news for those who belong to the Messiah. But it is sure terror for those who do not. Because if you remain an enemy of God and an enemy of his Messiah, Christ Jesus, your doom is not just probable, it's not just possible, but your doom is sure. There is no hope in avoiding the damnation and judgment which Christ Jesus will bring when he returns. God's hand will be upon that work as well. Your only hope is to turn to him so that his death counts as yours. His damnation on the cross counts as yours. Because his work to assure all damnation is fulfilled will certainly be accomplished either on his own shoulders on the cross or on yours when he sends you to hell. Jesus' work to raise people from the dead will also be done. It will certainly be done. He rose from the dead, and so will all who trust in him as their Messiah. And we sing, and when I reach my final day, he will not leave me in the grave. The hand of God was, which was on David, the first anointed king of Israel with a permanent throne, giving him success, this was God giving evidence that you can trust that whatever the Lord Jesus sets out to do to redeem his people will certainly happen. The Lord's hand is upon the Messiah. That's how the Lord responds to David, little m, Messiah's work. He blesses it. His hand is on it. And now we can look at the people's response. First, we can look at the affection for the Lord's Messiah. So how does Israel respond to that Messiah, to that little M Messiah? Did you notice Jonathan and his sister Michael? Saul's children, you know how they love him? They love him dearly. I mean, you could hardly put into words more extreme and more beautiful than the words expressed to express their love for him. They loved him as their own souls. Their souls were knit to him. They're thankful for him. They delight in him as a good gift from God. They love him as their own soul. Jonathan considers David to be a better gift than inheriting the throne would be. Remember, Jonathan stood next in line to Saul's throne and he had the most to lose of anyone if David really was to be made king. So there's no greater gift than one could get 
than if the Lord would give you a Messiah to reign over you and to redeem you. And the response of the redeemed is pure love and affection. The people of Israel, too, they rejoice, not just Jonathan and Michael, the, the, the rest of the people, too, they rejoice. They rejoice at the victories won by David. They're singing and dancing, tambourines. There's exuberance. There's pure delight. Affection for this Messiah, even before he is crowned king. But then we also see that that is juxtaposed, that affection for the Lord's Messiah, little m, is juxtaposed, it's contrasted, it's compared with the hatred for the Lord's Messiah. Did you notice that? Did you notice Saul's reaction? Hatred and jealousy. One person loves that God's hand is on the Messiah to bless him. Another man is jealous and wants to take his place. He wants that which David is receiving. One man wants nothing else other than to be reigned by the Lord's Messiah. And the other man can think of nothing worse than to be reigned by the Lord's Messiah. Saul uses his daughter's, my, daughter Michael's affection for David to trap him. The cost to marry her is 100 Philistine foreskins. This is brutal. It's disgusting by our standards. It's also disgusting by their standards. And it's likely going to cost David his life. But the Lord's hand is on David, and he's successful and defeats 200 men who harassed and threatened the lives of God's people. And the Lord establishes a pattern here for the Messiah, the true and great and final Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what this pattern is establishing, that there is no neutral position in relation to the Lord's Messiah. You will either love him and his work for his people, or you will hate it. You will either love the gospel or you will hate it. The gospel is the good news of what Christ has done instead of sinners for them. That he died for their sins and that he rose from the dead and that he ascended into heaven and that he is returning in glory to judge the living and the dead. You will either love that or you will hate it. It will be a stench to you or it will be a sweet delight. Now, if we change the gospel a little bit, an unsaved person might like it. Add some of my own works. I'm saved by Jesus and my own goodness. Yes, that I like. I'm saved by the work that Jesus does to change me into a good person. So now my confidence comes off of what Jesus did on the cross, and now it's my confidence in the, in the goodness that Jesus is working in me. Well, that's another false gospel that unsaved people can love because it allows them to have some of that glory. It doesn't teach that they are so helpless and guilty. But the pure gospel that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that is something that separates those who love God and who hate him. And if you are ambivalent to the gospel, say that you are here, and maybe you're here regularly, or maybe here for the first time, 
And if you yourself would say, I, I do not believe the gospel, you know what? I'm happy here. I don't mind it here. I kind of enjoy it here. I have to tell you that you do not understand the gospel. Because if you did, you would hate it or you would love it. 2 Corinthians 2, uh, verse 14 to 16, this is Paul speaking in relation to the hatred of those who preach the gospel. He says this, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. And the other, a fragrance from life to life. And so you, either, you will either see your own wicked wretchedness and rejoice that God has given a Messiah to take the damnation you deserve, or you will fail to see how sinful you are and you will hate the implications that you needed such a complete and utter salvation. You'll see how terrible you are to belong to yourself and you will rejoice that God has given you to Christ or you're going to hate the idea of belonging to another. You will long for Christ to receive more glory or you will be jealous and you're going to want some of it for yourself. So brothers and sisters and unbelieving guests, Church teaching that puts you in David's place. Conquering your own giants. This is attractive to us because our sinful hearts, which are jealous of Jesus. I want my life to be the spectacular one. The one which tales are told of. I want the credit and excitement of winning a victory for myself with God's strength. So we read the Bible, and rather than thinking that it's for me, we are prone to thinking that it's about me. It's about God saving his people, giving them a redeemer. So don't be surprised when you prefer that kind of teaching, but you need to reject it and boast only in the finished work of Christ Jesus in your place. Look at the affection which this worked in Jonathan's heart for David. That is a foreshadow. That is a fraction of the affection which the Lord works in your heart for the Lord Jesus. When your eyes are opened to see that he is the Messiah provided by the Lord to redeem and reign over you. You see God's love and generosity in providing such a king. And you love him in response to the affection which he has already demonstrated by giving you a Messiah to single-handedly redeem you. That brings us to our second point, which is this. The Lord will not let his Messiah's life be taken from him. The Lord will not let his Messiah's life be taken from him. David, of course, being a man, will die one day. We know this. But as the Lord's Messiah, little M, no matter who tries to take David's life, his life cannot be taken. That's for the Lord to decide. He couldn't just be killed. We're going to read this in 1 Samuel chapter 19. Read with me. 
And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, so that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For when he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, as the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it, and you rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was a war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them a, with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and he, as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed and with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul. He said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he said, he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And when it was told Saul, behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah, and, and, and it was told, behold, David is at Reoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told to Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku, and he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And, he, and, and, and as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Comical and sad. Did you notice the efforts which Saul makes to kill David? First, he sets it up that, that David's going to die at the hand of another to hide his guilt. 
But I want you, then he goes directly to get him himself. Notice how the Lord will not allow his chosen one's life to be taken. Messengers are sent to capture him, but the Lord takes over their bodies. They lose control over their bodies, and they can't do the thing that they want to do or that Saul wants them to do. They can't capture him. What a joke. They end up saying things that they never chose to say. God is showing his control over everything, even the enemies of the Messiah. And that reminds us of the time, I wonder if, you, if this made you think of this, that the time which Balak, the, an enemy king, tried to hire a false prophet. This is during the days of Numbers. He, he, he hired a false prophet to curse God's people. It's the story of Balaam and Balak, but he couldn't do it. The Lord takes over. It was impossible for him to curse God's people. You get a donkey prophesying. There's this, this joke of how silly it is for somebody to destroy the work of the Lord. Go ahead and try, and we'll see what a fool you are. You're going to lie naked on the floor, totally out of control of your own body. A divine flex of power ends with Saul naked, lying on the ground, saying things about God that he didn't even want to say. And this proves that he is both powerless and cursed to destroy the Lord's anointed. Even the enemies of God and of the Messiah are under the complete sovereignty of God. The Messiah's life cannot be taken. And that was a pattern established for Israel to see and be prepared when the Lord would send the Messiah after sending many little M Messiahs. And when Jesus came, the leaders of God's people hated him. And they tried to kill him, but they were unable to. Try as they might, he could not be killed. They couldn't take his life over and over again. The refrain was, it was not his hour, it was not his time. They were made to look like fools by God. This is one thing you see as you read the Gospels. You see how foolish the, the, uh, the Pharisees are. In fact, one of, the, one of the leaders of God's people ends up prophesying in favor of the Messiah. Remember how that happened when they were trying to kill him. And that was to show that when the Messiah, if the great Messiah were ever to die, it wouldn't be that his life was taken. It would be him laying down his life by his own choice. So when Jesus of Nazareth, clearly shown by God, by the word and history and miracles, he's clearly shown to be the Messiah, the Son of God, when he was crucified, it was part of God's plan to redeem his people. It was God's plan, not the leader's plan. It wasn't to end God's plan to redeem his people. It was to accomplish God's plan to redeem his people. It also means that Jesus was compelled by love to die for the sins of his people. The shepherd loved the sheep. He gave up his life for them. It wasn't the wolf's decision that the shepherd would die for the sheep. It was the shepherd's decision. 
because it's the only thing that would save the sheep. So brothers and sisters, let the love of God in Christ Jesus now wash over you. He didn't merely die for you. He was damned for you. He took hell and the wrath of God for you out of great love for you. He didn't have to. He didn't have to save you. You never forced him to do it by being worthy. It was his free choice to set his affections and love upon you while you were sinners and then to die for your sins. It was his plan, not yours. What love. He loved his sheep and he desired to take the wrath of God instead of them taking it. What love. It brings us to our third point, which is this. An everlasting covenant with the Lord's Messiah comes with both humiliation and blessing. Let's continue reading. 1 Samuel chapter 20. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said, before, and, and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And, and, behold, and, sorry, and he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I shall not fail to, go to sit at the table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good... It will be well with your servant, but if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more so also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. 
On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain beside the stone heap. And, as, and I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot a mark. And behold, I will send the young man saying, go, find the arrows. If I say to the young man, look, the arrows are on the side of it, take them. Then you are to come, for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he's not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty, and Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me go away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him, so Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to the boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot the arrows beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master, but the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to him, Go, carry them into the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another. David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you for, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Did you notice the desire in Jonathan? A thirst for a covenant with David that would last past death? Did you notice that? Forever. One that death couldn't end. Jonathan couldn't pay for the covenant with David, with riches or with crown or a sword, but he knew that it would actually cost him those things. Saul reminded him of that. He couldn't cling to his crown and a covenant with David at the same time. See, if I have a rotten heart and I need a heart transplant, I have to give up my rotten heart to receive the new heart. And I would be foolish to think, 
I'm paying for this new heart with my rotten heart that needs to be replaced. And so it is with Jonathan. This is the way he considers the crown that he's giving up to have a covenant with David and David's messiahship. He gives up his claim to a throne which is passing away anyways. To belong to a kingdom that will endure forever. Jonathan also shares in David's humiliation, doesn't he? As Saul now heaps hatred and scorn on Jonathan simply for loving David. You fool. You son of a bad woman. And so it is with the great and true Messiah. David's son, the son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. You do not pay in order to have a permanent covenant with him as your Messiah. But it will be costly. It comes with humiliation. First, it comes with the humiliation of recognizing your bankruptcy and the need of such a salvation. That is humiliating, that is humbling. Then there's the humility of belonging to him rather than to yourself, that is a humiliation to belong to another. You'll also share, though, in the hatred which the enemies of Christ have for him. Most notably, the devil hates you. But so do the people who hate the gospel. Now they have disdain for you as well. They will shame you for belonging to Jesus. But... Those who suffer with him will be glorified with him. They will certainly and surely be glorified with him when he comes in glory. Jonathan was wise to endure the temporary humiliation of being in a covenant with the Lord's Messiah. And brothers and sisters, the most precious possession you could have is to have a covenant sworn to you by the Lord's Messiah. Think of Jonathan saying to David, swear to me. And David swore to him. The most precious possession you could have is not a crown, not riches, but to have a covenant sworn to you by the Lord's permanent Messiah to forever belong to him. For, you, for him to swear to you that your sins are counted as his sins and that his righteousness is counted as your righteousness, that when you meet the Lord in judgment, you will receive what Christ deserves because he already received what you deserved on the cross, that his death and damnation on the cross counts as yours, that his resurrection from the dead secured yours when you die, a covenant which cannot be broken by death. This is love sealed with an oath. Did you notice David cried more than Jonathan? That affection built into the Lord's Messiah for his people. This is love sealed with an oath, and it's not just any man's oath, but it's the man whom the Lord's hand is on to keep all his oaths. Not only that, Jesus is God, which means his oath is not even possible to be broken. The most precious possession you could have is to be in covenant with the Lord's Messiah. And the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took wine and poured it out, and he said this, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so today we will celebrate the oath 
made by the great and true Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the oath that is sealed with his blood. And the Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus to be a sign, a visible sign of the oath that he has made to you. If your faith is in the Son of God, then that blood that he spilled out paid for your sins. All who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are part of that covenant permanently. His oaths are for you, and they cannot be broken. Imagine what it would be like to stand before God, knowing your own sin, knowing the things you've thought and wanted and done and said, Imagine knowing the holiness and perfection of God and his power. Imagine what that would be like to receive from him what you deserve. And now think Jesus willingly took that instead of you. Nothing but love could explain him willingly doing that for you. I'm going to invite our elders to come and prepare as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. I want to ask you to join with me in prayer as the elders come forward, and we're going to pray together. Father in heaven, we rejoice that you have given us the thing that is most precious. First, you've given us a Messiah, but then you've also given us an oath, the oath of the gospel, the swears in the covenant of the gospel that you have made that you will redeem your church, that her sins are certainly paid for, that you will certainly bring her from the dead, and that she will certainly be brought to glory with you. And so, Lord, we rejoice now in the oath that you have sworn. And I pray, Lord, that you would work faith in us. Lord, I pray that as we see this and participate in this, you would work faith in us in the gospel of your Son, and that we would rejoice in the love which you have shown to us in him. I pray that you would bless this in Jesus' name. Amen.